Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we're talking about Twitter and Elon Musk, who are now embroiled in one of the biggest busted deal fights really in history. Obviously, Elon Musk had proposed to buy Twitter's shares for $54.20 per share or about a total price of $44 billion before deciding, nah, he didn't want to buy the company after all. Now, I'm a little dismissive of that particular statement when I say it that way. So maybe you're on Elon Musk's side and you think that Twitter didn't give him the information he needed to evaluate the deal properly. That's fine. Either way you frame this particular story, it's big and it's only going to get bigger because now the billionaire and the billion dollar company are fighting. And of course, we talked about Twitter's lawsuit in the Delaware Court of Chancery. We went through every single word of it, as it turns out, in our Hangouts and Headlines format. I know a number of you didn't necessarily love that. You can find it in the Elon Twitter playlist. But if you're interested in the overall kind of commentary here, Twitter lays out a pretty good case for an individual in Elon Musk that got cold feet that had backed a number of his financing sources through Tesla stock. And when the market turned, needed to use more Tesla stock in order to backstop those finances and decided it got a little bit too rich for his blood. In putting forth their arguments, Twitter makes a number of solid kind of complaints, including that he had negotiated to use every instance, all actions, cause all things to be done that are necessary, proper, or advisable, to obtain the financing, to get the money together to buy Twitter, and that he has breached that covenant because of things we hadn't seen uh, in public that they described as happening behind the scenes in terms of him stopping the backstop financing, having more conversations with his bankers, asking for more information from Twitter. He is accused by Twitter of making public statements outside of section 6.8 of the merger agreement, which prohibits him from making such statements without the other party's consent, with one major exception, and that is he's allowed to tweet about the merger details so long as such tweets do not disparage the company or its representatives. So we get into a little bit of a conversation in the Twitter complaint that is, is a poop emoji a disparaging comment on Twitter or its leadership? Certainly, you don't generally want to be described that way with that particular emoji, but is it disparagement? And we'll see Elon Musk and his legal team try to answer that question in the document we're going to be looking at today. We saw them try to discount what is Elon Musk's main argument, that no, he was not foreclosed from due diligence. He was allowed to evaluate the company that he had otherwise signed up to purchase. That's why he negotiated this big section 6.4 that says, among other things, that upon company's uh, reasonable request, upon Elon's reasonable request, he can go ask Twitter for information for any reasonable business purpose related to the consummation of the transactions. Now, reasonable minds can differ on this. This is one of the reasons why when I went over Twitter's complaint, I said to you all, as described by Elon Musk, the data requested sounds reasonable. As described by Twitter, the data requested sounds like it's non-existent, that they're bending over backwards to even create it for him, and that he is, as Twitter accuses him of doing, looking for pretext to get out of the deal and found what he believes to be a winning argument in this notion that there are more bots among the monetized active users at Twitter than Twitter is willing to admit. And Twitter, for the most part, says it's less than 5% of that monetized count of its users, and Elon Musk disagrees. 
And Twitter disagrees with him being allowed to ask these questions. They say they went too far. They aren't in breach of 6.4 for not delivering the information to him exactly as he requested. And furthermore, that they had negotiated for a bunch of carve-outs here, including a kind of wild one that says, nothing herein shall require the company, that's Twitter, to disclose any information to Elon if such disclosure would, in the reasonable judgment of Twitter, it's their judgment, it's their call, one, cause significant competitive harm to the company or its subsidiaries, Twitter, if the transactions contemplated by the agreement are not consummated. So 6.4 is Elon Musk's main argument. I asked for this information. They didn't provide it to me. They are in breach of that provision. And as part, as we will see in the language, that breach is causing a material adverse effect in some form or fashion. And thus I can walk away from this deal, not only entirely without buying your company, but also without owing you a billion dollars, which I had otherwise guaranteed to pay you if you were the ones that decided to terminate the deal because I had breached. So it becomes a fight over who breached what and when. They also don't have to deliver information if it would violate the law or jeopardize attorney-client privilege. Those don't appear to be at issue here, but they do appear to have some cover to say, look, we didn't want to provide this information because we thought it would do competitive harm to us if this deal were to fall through, and lo and behold, here we are. Elon Musk's primary response before now, before we read the document that he has put forth to the court most recently, was effectively, hey, I sign an NDA, I'll sign another NDA, I will bind myself by contract to not use this information against you, what more can I do? And at that point, I think trust had just broken down between these two parties. And so Twitter, in their complaint to the Delaware Court of Chancery, which there were reports on leaks, rumors that had been prepared before Elon Musk purported to terminate the deal. And there's really no surprise there that when things start going sour, you give the green light at some point to your very highly priced attorneys to go and start drafting documents so that you're ready if the day should come. They were ready because they knew that this was going sour. Elon Musk tried to terminate and they prepared that document. But Twitter has those complaints in its back pocket. And why are those complaints useful? He's making statements out of school. He's not doing what he's supposed to do for his financing. He's asking for too much information as a pretext, uh, which could go against good faith, fair dealing and get into those kinds of issues. And they had a number of other separate sectional complaints there. Why? Because the Elon Musk side of the termination provision only allows him to terminate the agreement provided that he is not in breach of the agreement himself. So one of the things Twitter is trying to establish in their complaint document to the court of chancery is he was in breach. He sent a poop emoji. He stopped looking for his equity financing. He did all these other things to try to scuttle the deal. He was in breach when he tried to terminate the agreement. And this section specifically says he's not allowed to terminate the agreement while he's in breach, which I find to be a pretty compelling argument, honestly, just reading through the way the contracts work. And if he tries to terminate the agreement when he's not allowed to do so, as we talked about in earlier videos in this playlist, then, well, he's in breach for that reason, because he has now told the world that he isn't going to go through. He isn't going to consummate the transaction. He isn't going to abide by the covenants, the promises that he has otherwise agreed to. So when he goes to terminate it, the agreement doesn't get terminated. He just puts everyone on notice that he is no longer willing to do the things he promised to do under the agreement. And that in and of itself is likely a breach. Now, how does Twitter arrive at asking the Court of Chancery in Delaware to actually make him purchase the company? Well, because they had negotiated for a provision that sounds a little like this. Notwithstanding anything herein to the contrary, anything in the agreement at all, 
including the availability of the parent termination fee, that billion dollars, or other monetary damages, remedy, or award, it is hereby acknowledged and agreed that the company, Twitter, shall be entitled to specific performance or other equitable remedy to enforce parent and acquisition subs obligations to cause the equity investor to fund or to enforce the equity investor's obligation to fund directly and to consummate the closing if all of the conditions that are prerequisites to the company closing itself, that Twitter has done everything that it is supposed to do on its side of the desk, are otherwise complete. Now, Twitter has a small problem there because Twitter isn't quite done with getting its regulatory approvals and otherwise being ready to be sold. So those conditions do not appear from the outside looking in to be finished. And so this provision doesn't appear to be applicable, especially if they're otherwise in breach of the provision themselves, because these sections say you're not in breach. The reps are true. You're not in breach. All those kinds of things. And so once again, you get into a kind of circular fight on the facts and circumstances of the issue at hand. But that's what Twitter put forth. Twitter put together a good document. If you've got three hours to spare or if you can stand me at 2x speed, an hour and a half, please do check it out because we went through every line. We talked about exactly what we were seeing as we saw it. And I think it's an interesting way to look at a document, not as curated as what we do normally in virtual legality, but with a more kind of first reading, this is how I think about things as we go through, that I think is a little bit different approach to a contract like this one. But that leaves us where we are right now. Twitter puts together this complaint at the same time they ask for an expedited process. They want this to go to trial, I believe in September, which is a very, very short period of time, obviously for a trial to start. You got to go through discovery. You got to plan for the trial. And then you actually have to have the trial. But the Delaware Court of Chancery has historically been willing to have very fast trials. Maybe not this fast, though. And that's exactly what Elon Musk argues in his response to the court. Says defendants opposition to plaintiff's motion to expedite proceedings. This court should reject Plaintiff Twitter Inc.'s unjustifiable request to rush this $44 billion merger case to trial in just two months. Twitter's bid for extreme expedition rests on the false premise that the termination date in the merger agreement is October 24th, glossing over that this date is automatically stayed if either party files litigation. By filing its complaint, Plaintiff has rendered its supposed need for that September trial moot. And much like we've talked about when reading other legal documents in this space or otherwise, you want to put together your strongest arguments up top. And I think this is a pretty strong argument. So Twitter says this needs to happen fast because the deal's going to die, right? If we look at section 6.8 termination here, it says notwithstanding anything in this agreement to the contrary, the agreement may be terminated, of course, by mutual agreement. The parties can just agree to walk away or by either side. If the merger shall not have been consummated on or before 5 p.m. Pacific time on October 24th, 2022. So Twitter rolls in here and says, look, that's a drop dead date. Once Elon Musk has the legal ability to terminate this and we don't have to go through any of these other provisions that he's otherwise locked out of your honor because he's otherwise in breach, we get into real trouble because he can walk away and then that's actually following the letter of the law. Now, there are instances where this gets extended, as Elon Musk argues at the top of his document, including here in this very section, it says the termination date shall be extended for six months if the conditions set forth in 7.1b or 7.1c shall not have been satisfied. So we could go and look at those in the merger agreement. We find ourselves in a section that talks about Hart-Scott-Rodino approval, 
which we talked about earlier today with respect to Microsoft and Activision. That is the antitrust approval that happens when the FTC looks at something. More specifically, it's the expiration of the window uh, that they otherwise have to object to a deal. Like I said, the U.S. likes to march to the beat of its own drummer. They don't approve deals on the antitrust side. They just let windows expire. But we're obviously not talking about that yet. Or no governmental authority of the jurisdiction set forth in the various important jurisdictions shall have enacted, issued, promulgated, enforced, or entered any law or order which is then in effect and has the effect of restraining, enjoining, rendering illegal, or otherwise prohibiting consummation of the merger. Nobody that runs a legislature has outlawed Elon Musk buying Twitter. Also, not at issue. So what is Mr. Musk talking about, right? There isn't a specific exception set forth herein that would otherwise get you out of this in any kind of particularity. So where does this get extended? And the answer is towards the end of the document. When we looked at this section about specific performance, it included this section down here, C. And in C, what we've got is a separate kind of extension concept. That extension concept says the following. To the extent any party hereto brings an action, suit, or proceeding to specifically enforce the performance of the terms and provisions of this agreement, other than an action to enforce specifically any provision that was otherwise surviving the agreement's termination, the termination date shall automatically be extended to the 20th business day following the resolution of such action or such other time as might be established by the court. So Elon Musk is right. To the extent Twitter hangs its hat on the notion that October 24th is some kind of drop dead date, the parties had already negotiated in that final specific performance section of the agreement that if somebody sues to specifically perform, which is exactly what Twitter has done here, well, then the date is automatically extended to 20 days after that particular action would be concluded. So Mr. Musk's right. At the top, very strong argument in the first paragraph. Again, not on the merits. Not to say Elon Musk is correct in everything he argues, he's owed that information, etc. Some of that will come into this document. But this is a motion opposing an expedited process. He doesn't want to have this trial in September. For what reason does he want to avoid that? Well, he claims it's because he doesn't think that they could get prepared in time for that particular deal. Whether or not you agree with that is going to depend on how you feel about Elon Musk. Either way, he'd prefer to have this trial happen in February. Nor does the remainder of the motion to expedite remotely justify extreme expedition, instead highlighting the complexity of the case and the impossibility of completing discovery on the timeline proposed. In fact, Twitter has engaged in tactical delay for two months by resisting defendants' information requests, causing defendants obvious prejudice through an overly compressed schedule. Here, the mission statement is, let's remind the court of what our primary argument is here, that we have a right to request information, and it was not met for this purpose. Twitter's sudden request for warp speed after two months of foot dragging and obfuscation is its latest tactic to shroud the truth about spam accounts long enough to railroad defendants into closing. And ultimately, there's going to be a fight about spam accounts. There are rumors that uh, Elon Musk's team is preparing to sue, countersue Twitter for some of this information on spam accounts. And Twitter has presented some strong information in its own complaint that we covered in that longer video that basically said Elon Musk knew that there were spam account issues at Twitter the entire time. And that in private conversations, he had said, I need to buy this company. I need to take it private because I know when we purge the spam accounts from the monetized users, well, that's going to look terrible for the company's numbers, which is at least strong circumstantial evidence on the part of Twitter that says 
Elon Musk knew what he was getting into, and that presents a problem for fraud and deceit and all the things that kind of go with the informational component of Elon Musk's request. The core dispute over false and spam accounts is fundamental to Twitter's value. It is also extremely fact and expert intensive, requiring substantial time for discovery. Twitter is a social media platform whose self-professed key performance metric is monetizable daily active users, or MDAU. Since the agreement was first signed, new facts have come to light that call into doubt the truthfulness of Twitter's curiously static representation in SEC filings that less than 5% of its accounts are false or spam. Now here we're kind of alighting things, and I know a number of commenters even to that earlier video commented on that to me, which is that you really can't shorten MDAU to active users. It is the monetizable component of that active user number, and instead Elon Musk tends to refer to it as accounts or users. On April 28th, just three days after signing the agreement, Twitter restated three years of its MDAU numbers, despite never disclosing the issue to defendants pre-signing. Post-signing, defendants promptly sought to understand Twitter's process for identifying false or spam accounts. In a May 6th meeting with Twitter executives, Musk was flabbergasted to learn just how meager Twitter's process was. Human reviewers randomly sampled 100 accounts per day, less than 0.00005% of daily users, and applied unidentified standards to somehow conclude every quarter for nearly three years that fewer than 5% of Twitter users were false or spam. That's it. No automation, no AI, no machine learning. Here again, it appears that Elon Musk is alighting the difference between monetized users and non-monetizable users, and that might come back to bite him in the butt. You also see a little bit of overly heated rhetoric here, the curiously static implying bad faith on Twitter, implying lies uh, and falsehoods. Here you get a description that Twitter vehemently opposes as what happens here, but also you get a kind of conclusion that they should be required to use automation, AI, or machine learning that the law probably doesn't support. What they need to do is something that is statistically significant that they can justify on this in order to have their reports go. But I'm not even sure that that standard comes into play here where essentially what they have is the standard that they have. And if they have some kind of reason for putting that forth to the SEC in those reports, that might be enough of a defensive statement to get out of this whole thing from the Twitter side of things. Alarmed. Defendants exercise their information rights to validate Twitter's user claims. At every turn, however, Twitter deliberately erected artificial roadblocks and frustrated defendants' efforts. Indeed, on June 20th, Twitter admitted the information it provided is insufficient to perform the spam analysis. Put simply, defendants asked for and were refused the same information that Twitter relies on in making its less than 5% representation. This is the questions that we saw in the termination notice. He wanted to know who was looking at these things, how they were looking at them, etc., etc. The limited information Twitter has provided calls its representations into serious doubt. Meanwhile, Twitter has adopted significant personnel changes without consent, which is a bit of a non sequitur uh, for this paragraph, but they are establishing the reasons why they think they can hold Twitter to be in breach. Resolving these issues will require complex technical discovery, including the forensic review and analysis of large swaths of data. Twitter's complaint only adds to that complexity. Rather than simply challenging defendants' termination, Twitter has manufactured a hodgepodge of baseless new claims, none of which were ever noticed. With the same sense of humor of a bot, says the footnote, Twitter claims that Musk is damaging the company with tweets like a Chuck Norris meme and a poop emoji. 
Twitter ignores that Musk is its second largest shareholder with a far greater economic stake than the entire Twitter board. Probably Twitter ignores that because it is completely inconsequential to the legal question of whether or not Musk is breaching the public announcements clause, which he is at least walking up to the line, if not over it, based on what they have put forth in their complaint. So here we have kind of a gotcha footnote, probably designed for virtual legality or USA Today or wherever to pick up and say, ah, look at that, where he's going with that particular argument. But as a lawyer, I look at that and say, uh, the fact that you own an interest in Twitter sure as heck doesn't mean that you can't disparage it or otherwise lower its value. The history of corporations is a history of shareholders doing various bad things to the corporations they hold an interest in for whatever reason they think is most beneficial to them at the time. So this footnote means nothing. And honestly, if I'm the judge, I read that and say, well, that's just obviously wrong. uh, And that doesn't help your standing as we read through your document. The extensive discovery required for all of these claims cannot be completed within six weeks. Given that the agreement's termination date is automatically stayed, it is unnecessary to resolve these weighty considerations on a breakneck schedule. Plaintiff's proposed schedule would severely prejudice defendants by depriving them of a meaningful opportunity to take discovery, conduct expert analysis, and present their case. The only relevant date is the outside date for the debt financing, April 25th, 2023. So the existing debt financing documents have an out date where if the deal isn't consummated, they can walk away. Elon Musk says that's an important date. Let's get a trial done before then, but it doesn't need to be in two months. Accordingly, defendants respectfully request trial on or after February 13th, 2023, an extremely rapid schedule for a case of this enormous magnitude that provides the court time for reasoned adjudication before the true outside date. Then they give background, but the first and most important question is, what will the judge do with this? Twitter says we want to have it in September. Musk says we want to have it in February. Just on my own opinion in this particular instance, without regard to whether Twitter's right or Musk is right or what is infighting in the footnotes or whatnot, I think February sounds like a more reasoned date for a $45 billion broken deal kind of litigation than six weeks, two months from now. Um, So I side with that just kind of on a rule of reason basis. Yes, let's make sure we get this thing right. Twitter says we're held in limbo. It hurts our company. Undoubtedly, that is in fact the case to some extent. Uh, But I do think you want to have at least what would be, you know, five, six, seven months to do discovery, to prepare for a deal of this size if you're going to have this fight. Some of you might disagree with that. Some of you might say this is a slam dunk. I would suspect some of you might say it's a slam dunk one way or the other and representing both sides, which presents its own problem. Uh, But either way, I think that Musk probably has the best of it because two months does seem very, very fast, even for the Court of Chancery. But you can remember this comment when I'm wrong, and you can leave the comment letting me know so. Then we get some background. In early April 2022, Musk began exploring an acquisition of Twitter. From the start, he announced his intent to defeat the bots that plagued the platform, degrading the user experience. And here they're trying to own what is one of Twitter's kind of centerpiece arguments that he can't complain about bots at Twitter when he told everybody that he was concerned about those bots and he was buying the company to clean them up, which I think is a pretty strong rhetorical stance for Twitter to take. Although Musk was aware there were bots, he was unaware that Twitter's disclosures regarding MDAU were false. So... The fight becomes, yes, of course there are bots, but I thought it was more contained. You kept saying less than 5%, less than 5%, less than 5%. And now I get in here and I see, according to Elon Musk, 
you don't have any way to test these things. It's clearly more than 5%. And now the car that you were going to sell me is a lemon and I have to look at more information about that car and potentially the purchase price thereof. On April 25th, 2022, defendants and Musk entered into the agreement to purchase Twitter. Rather than engaging in prolonged diligence pre-signing, defendants bargained for and received representations and warranties regarding Twitter's condition and broad information rights. This, I think Elon Musk's team has exactly correct. Here you have Twitter and the internet arguing that he has foreclosed all efforts at due diligence. And I never, ever read this agreement to suggest that was the case. What happens in a normal process is that you sign a letter of intent, which is non-binding. You then have a diligence process that can last for months. And then you sign a merger agreement. Here, Elon Musk said, I will ditch that whole process. We can sign the merger agreement, but I need some covenants that I can go and ask for information and I can get more familiar with the company as we're in the in-between period between signing and closing. That's what section 6.4 does. That's how I read it. And while it has some weird carve outs for when Twitter can just decide to not provide information that might save the day for them in this particular context, I never once thought that Elon Musk was not allowed to ask questions or otherwise perform diligence on the company. This appears to be the exact right description of what was negotiated. I asked for information rights and I wanted reps and warranties to be true at the time of closing. And in this particular instance, Elon Musk's argument goes, those reps and warranties aren't true. The SEC filings aren't correct. And so I can then proceed to find the company in breach, right? And that's where he winds up, right? There's reps and warranties that say none of the company SEC documents at the time filed contained any untrue statement of a material fact. And he says those MDAUs are untrue. He also gets the same kind of rep with respect to the proxy statement that Twitter is going to put forth to its stockholders to get the deal approved, which contain the same information that they've otherwise gone to him with on the SEC documents. So he would say that is also potentially a problem. And if there is that kind of breach, well, then you don't have what it takes to actually close the deal, right? Each of the representations and warranties of the companies shall be true. Now, where Elon Musk finds himself in a bit of trouble here is that they don't have to be true if those failures don't rise to the level of a company material adverse effect, or as written here, they shall be true except for such failures to be true and correct as would not have a company material adverse effect. So you can breach your reps and warranties as negotiated by Twitter here, so long as the breach is de minimis, so long as the breach doesn't otherwise materially change the value of the company. So if again, you're thinking about you're buying a car, you show up at the lot, you get promises that it has you know, four doors and you get up there and there's a little uh, ding in one of the doors. Maybe that's not material. Doesn't really change the value proposition. You look around at the car, you still have to buy it at the end of the day. Now imagine the situation where the car door is completely bashed in and barely opens and maybe comes in on the driver's side seat and it just really doesn't function at all. You can go and say, well, that is something that materially and adversely affects the value of this asset I'm going to purchase. And so now I'm allowed to walk away. Essentially, what Elon Musk is arguing is that whatever happened with respect to the MDAU at Twitter, it was so significant that the SEC filings are so wrong that Twitter's value is materially different from what he thought it was when he signed the agreement. And worse, according to his termination letter, the SEC is probably going to have to look at it, which will itself lower the value even more. Again, you don't have to agree with Elon Musk here, but that's basically what he is arguing. And when they can't meet 
their specific reps and warranties when they are not true and cause a material adverse effect, he says he can walk away. Traditionally, the company material adverse effect definition interpretation is a tough one to win on uh, because in general, the courts, especially in Delaware, don't want to just kill deals and they're often written kind of broadly. We looked at the definitions in earlier videos. A company material adverse effect basically means a material adverse effect on the business of the company. Not a great definition to really hammer things out in this particular context, but that's where all his eggs are kind of carried. That's the basket where he finds himself is that they breached a covenant or they breached a representation of warranty that led to a material adverse effect. And which is, that's exactly what he says here. The agreement contains a representation that Twitter's SEC filings and thus its user-based disclosures are accurate. Specifically, Twitter represented that none of the company SEC documents at the time it was filed contained any untrue statement of a material fact. Musk relied on this representation and Twitter's SEC disclosures to sign the deal. The agreement also contains an information covenant requiring Twitter to furnish promptly to the defendants all information concerning the business properties and personnel of the company and its subsidiaries for any reasonable business purpose related to the consummation of the transactions contemplated by this agreement. Similarly, Twitter must provide information relevant to obtaining financing. Separately, Twitter must use its commercially reasonable efforts to run Twitter in the ordinary course of business, and defendants are not obligated to close if the company has not materially performed the covenants, hasn't met its promises, such as distributing information, its representations and warranties are inaccurate and cause a company material adverse effect, here defined as an MAE, we just looked at that section, or an MAE has occurred and is continuing. An MAE means any change event event effect or circumstance which has resulted in or would reasonably be expected to result in a material adverse effect on the business, financial condition, or results of operations of the company. Like I said, not a very strong definition, but we get what it is saying, something bad. Following a 30-day cure period, defendants may terminate the agreement due to a material covenant breach, or if any of the representations and warranties are untrue as of the closing date and have or will be reasonably expected to result in an MAE. Either party can also terminate if the closing does not occur by October 24th, 2022, but that date automatically extends. And then we get another recitation of Elon Musk meeting with Twitter about bots, spam, and fake accounts. Just three days after defendants signed the agreement, Twitter restated its MDAU figures in its Q1 2022 10Q, disclosing it had been double counting users since the first count quarter of 2019. By restating its financials, Twitter effectively admitted that changes in MDAU are material and portrayed its estimates as precise. Here, I gave credit to Elon Musk at the top. I think his first paragraph is strong, that Twitter is potentially misrepresenting what happens with respect to the drop dead date. I think he's made other strong points. Here, this point is bad, and we can talk about why. If we go look at what the restatement was, we can see that they have recast the MDAU pretty closely after Elon Musk agreed to purchase the company. But we can also see in this recasting, it may not be material, right? Here's their MDAU numbers. And they've got, for instance, uh, a 37.5 million uh, US MDAU. They thought it was 37.8 million, which makes them off by 0.3 million. Uh, In international, it's a little worse. They have another 1.5 and together they have 1.9 and they they say these aren't going to add up. So don't worry about their math uh, just there. But 1.9 million out of a total of 216 million, maybe not that material. Now, one place where Elon Musk makes a good argument is he says, well, it must be material. You're filing a financial statement recasting about it. 
And I think that's pretty good rhetorically, right? Because you don't have to tell the SEC every little thing that happens with your accounting books or any possible thing that could happen with your company. What you do owe them a report on are any errors, omissions, or otherwise that are material to the value of the company. And what Elon Musk says here is, well, if this was required to be filed by your accountants and your legal analysts or whatever, it must be material. And if it was material, that means getting it wrong, including getting it wrong when I signed the document and then recasting three days later, must mean that there was an error that could result in a material adverse effect. That said, I don't find this to be terribly material. And then when you look at how they actually talk about the MDAU, remember Musk says they're portrayed its estimates as precise because they changed numbers at a very small level. I think in all likelihood, Twitter has the better argument here because they say things like this. The numbers of MDAU presented in our earnings materials are based on internal company data. While these numbers are based on what we believe to be reasonable estimates for the applicable period of measurement, there are inherent challenges in measuring usage and engagement across our large number of total accounts around the world. Furthermore, our metrics may be impacted by our information quality efforts, which are our overall efforts to reduce malicious activity on the service, inclusive of spam, malicious automation, and fake accounts. For example, there are a number of false or spam accounts in existence on our platform. We have performed an internal review of a sample of accounts and estimate that the average of false or spam accounts during the first quarter of 2022 represented fewer than 5% of our MDAU during the quarter. So not the overall active users, but the monetizable active users. The false or spam accounts for a period representing the average of false or spam accounts in the samples during each monthly analysis period during the quarter. In making this determination, we applied significant judgment. So our estimation of false or spam accounts may not accurately represent the actual number of such accounts. And the actual number of false or spam accounts could be higher than we have estimated. We are continually seeking to improve our ability to estimate the total number of spam accounts and eliminate them from the calculation of our MDAU and have made improvements in our spam detection capabilities that have resulted in the suspension of a large number of spam, malicious automation, and fake accounts. This is actually one area where Elon Musk in his termination commentary accuses them of effectively committing fraud here because he says that their process is so ad hoc that they could not possibly be deemed to be continually seeking to improve or whatnot. But where Twitter gets it right, I think, is they say, look, we've got a sentence in here that says this number might be completely wrong and may be higher. Now, that I think is a strong argument for Twitter, of course, Like all of the things that we raise on the legal side of things, you can go too far with it. If you say there's less than 1% of spam within the MDAU and it turns out there's 99%, yes, the SEC can still come after you, even though you said it could be higher. That's not a good disclosure to your prospective investors. And remember, you're required to reveal every material thing and you can't omit to include other potentially material things that an investor would care about. And they would certainly care about, hey, we don't just not know what that number is, but we might be wildly off, which is the term of art that Elon Musk and his team uses when describing what's happening here. Still, you heard me say, I think this is a relatively weak argument on the part of Musk. And it is because those numbers do not appear to be material. They appear to be belt and suspenders filings that an overaggressive lawyer or tax lawyer or accountant wanted to make sure were filed because they thought it was important, but I'm not positive it's material to the value of the overall operation. And because they do have a lot of disclaiming language for what is a non-GAAP, non-generally accepted accounting principles kind of concept in MDAU, which is unique to Twitter in the first instance. So I do not think it is Musk's strongest argument. 
Defendants promptly sought to validate Twitter's user base representations. Thus, on May 6, 2022, Musk met with Twitter's leadership, including its CEO and CFO, to discuss, among other items, how Twitter calculates its spam population. Musk was stunned to discover that Twitter's process for identifying spam accounts relied on human reviewers to eyeball a minuscule portion of the user base rather than utilizing the company's machine learning capabilities. Now, this sounds to me and continues to sound to me like a difference of opinion. I could not sit here and tell you whether human reviews of 100 user accounts per day that are within the MDAU is good enough. But I can tell you from experience with statistics that you can get good results from a relatively small amount of the population that you're choosing to sample as long as randomness is observed and that kind of thing. And machine learning and AI and the rest is not the be all and end all of data or statistics analysis. And Musk is essentially saying that they're wrong and their stats are wrong and the results are wrong based effectively on what he would prefer to see being done for a test. I don't know how that will hold up, but I have my doubts that Elon Musk has the better part of this argument as the law is concerned with how you're allowed to operate your business before you're potentially acquired by a tech billionaire. Then we talk about the information covenants. In a series of formal follow-up requests starting on May 9th, defendants requested numerous categories of information regarding user base issues, including access to the Twitter firehose. One diligence request couldn't be plainer. How do you estimate that fewer than 5% of MDAU are false or spam accounts? Another request made clear that Mr. Musk also sought to verify Twitter's key metric independently. And then we have some footnote fights here. Up above with respect to the spam issue, Musk quickly understood that management did not have a handle on it. Says Twitter also fudges the timeline to make its pretext argument, stating that he was otherwise responding to a downfall in the market. The post announcement price of the SOCL social media ETF was essentially unchanged by May 6th. He's saying there wasn't that downfall when he decided to start asking these questions. So their pretext argument doesn't have merit. To the extent those timelines come into clarity during a discovery process, that would be useful to know, of course. And the firehouse is described as reflecting all public tweets and likes, but only approximately 30% of the accounts Twitter counts and MDAU interact with the platform in these ways. So he's trying to establish that the firehose might not even give you a great statistical analysis of the MDAU, which again comes back to the fight about whether Twitter owed it to him, whether his request for it was acceptable, whether Twitter was bending over backwards or setting up roadblocks for his review. In response, Twitter has led defendants on a two-month treasure hunt of delays, technical bottlenecks, evasive answers, and ultimately refusals. For example, on June 15th, Twitter provided defendants with something it misleadingly labeled the Twitter firehose internal, which the media has widely reported was Twitter's firehose, but it was not, in fact, the firehose. How many times can we say firehose in one sentence? Instead, defendants received a bespoke partial data set structured to make the necessary machine analysis impossible. Here's an accusation that not only did they not hand over what they should have, they created a separate thing that took extra effort and more resources in order to hide the information from Elon Musk. It's a bit conspiratorial, but obviously if they did that, that would be a big flag against them. Defendants attempted to navigate these roadblocks with requests from Morgan Stanley beginning May 9th and sent follow-up letters on May 25th, 31st, June 6th, 17th, and 29th before ultimately concluding that Twitter was intentionally withholding requested information. Twitter itself admitted as much, writing to defendants on June 20th that while it would finally provide its existing Firehose stream over a month late, that data would be insufficient to perform the spam analysis defendants sought to conduct because Twitter still provide, refused to provide the private data required for privacy reasons, as Twitter claims, and I'm not sure they're wrong there. So I'm not sure this is the silver bullet that the Musk team seems to think it is, that when they say, hey, we'll hand over this stuff, but it's not going to get you where you want to go. They don't have an obligation to help you figure out what your analysis should be that you won't now want to undertake.
The user information requested relates directly to the closing conditions, the availability of financing and transition planning for the business. So this kind of elides some of what Twitter argued here, including that he's in breach at the time, and also including that Elon Musk had basically promised that the financing was done and that there shouldn't be a concern about the availability of financing, which I think Twitter probably has the better part of in terms of an argument. Twitter's conduct raised red flags about whether its representatives are true representations, and there is an MAE. In its SEC disclosures, Twitter lists MDAU first among its key metrics, touting it as the leading measure of the company's performance. Twitter also represents that no more than 5% of these accounts in a given quarter consist of false or spam accounts and claims to remove them from its MDAU count. MDAU is critical. Thus, if Twitter's actual MDAU is materially less than represented, not only has Twitter made a misrepresentation that may justify rescission for fraud, but that is also likely to reduce Twitter's value, which could constitute an MAE in and of itself. Again, I don't know where this particular evidence is coming from. These are basically raw assertions from Musk and his team. Twitter's ordinary course violation. Since the deal was signed, Twitter has adopted significant personnel changes that violate its ordinary course obligations by instituting a hiring freeze that extended to existing offers, firing the company's revenue product lead and head of product, and terminating a third of its talent acquisition team. Twitter says in its complaint that they had negotiated for the right to conduct hirings and firings so that this shouldn't be an issue. But I do have to say, as I did with respect to that complaint, that that really isn't an answer to special cases like firing of high-level executives or laying off a third of a specific division based on a hiring freeze that here Elon Musk says he was never a party to. Contrary to what the complaint implies, Twitter did not give notice nor request consent for these employment decisions. So here we have a fact fight. Twitter says we asked for consent. He refused it. We did these things anyway. And or we had the right to do these hirings and firings. So he couldn't block them in any event. Elon Musk says you absolutely did not. Again, after reading the agreement, I tend to think that it is a broader ordinary course obligation than Twitter gives it credit for in the document that they put forth. I don't know whether they approached Elon Musk for consent. He says that they didn't. And if they didn't, then they do things like lay off a third of a department. I do think you could potentially have an issue here because they are supposed to be maintaining Twitter as it was when he signed that agreement until he closes on the deal. And that's clearly not the case. But Twitter did reserve for itself the right to make certain moves. And so it would come down to a fact fight in a court of law. Musk's termination of the agreement and Twitter's new claims Following Twitter's persistent disregard of its contractual obligations on July 8th, 2022, Musk terminated the agreement. Until then, defendants had met all their contractual obligations, devoting substantial resources to pursuing the transaction, including financing. On July 12th, 2022, four days later, Twitter sued defendants, challenging not only their termination, but introducing blunderbuss claims regarding defendants' supposed breaches of their obligations to close, consummate financing, provide information, consent to operational changes, refrain from disparagement, and preserve confidentiality, most of which are premature and all of which are meritless. This premature here is interesting. What could that mean? Specifically, those relate to the financing, I would imagine, and information related to the financing, but certainly claiming that he's disparaging them out on Twitter or in public, that isn't premature, nor would it be premature to say that he has breached his confidentiality obligation. So we kind of blunderbuss our own way in through the Elon Musk motion as a defense to what he claims is a blunderbuss of claims on the Twitter side of things. Now, the argument, there is no automatic right to expedition. The standards for expedition must be considered against the backdrop of the burden imposed on the parties, the court, and the public when this court orders that parties litigate on an expedited schedule. Shouldn't be the standard. There isn't an automatic right. 
Plaintiff's schedule is unnecessary and unduly burdensome. Twitter's unjustified bid for an expedited trial in September 2022 must be rejected. Twitter premises its request on a supposed October 24th, 2022 drop dead date in the agreement, but obscures that such date is automatically extended for litigation, which we have verified ourselves in the agreement as negotiated between the parties. So again, strong argument from the Musk team on this part. Indeed, this case goes well beyond the significant complexities of a typical busted deal case, implicating complex data science questions concerning the accuracy of Twitter's disclosures regarding the number of false and spam accounts. The factual record regarding these representations will likely involve sifting through hundreds of billions of actions on Twitter and reviewing related sampling and control processes. This will take a long time, your honor. Defendants anticipate that these issues will require at least 30 to 40 fact depositions and at least 12 expert depositions in total. This is going to be a long case, Your Honor. It will also require 30B6 depositions of witnesses who can explain Twitter's information systems and processes for identifying spam and false accounts, as well as its procedures and controls governing Twitter's disclosures. Experts may include advertising, data science, valuation, finance, and industry experts. Here's where you start to look at things and say, did Elon Musk just want to sue over this information? Did he just want access to these materials, either because he wants to start a competitor to Twitter and he thinks this is a good way to do it, or to cause pain on these fronts because Twitter is refusing to answer his questions? I can't tell you the answer to that. Every prediction I have made on the Elon Musk side has proven at least partially wrong uh, because he is a wild card actor and he does what he wants on these kinds of things. But leave a comment if you think that this is part of an overall four-dimensional chess strategy to get access to this information and to get Twitter to sue him so that he can access it with the pretext of just defending himself from a claim in this particular capacity. Nearly every case Twitter cites to support its lightning speed schedule either involved a genuine drop dead date, one that was hard and fast, or a stipulated trial date. Here, that's not the case because it extends automatically for the court. Finally, where plaintiff cites the uncertainty surrounding Twitter's ownership and market conditions as a basis for hyper expedition, adding a little color there, that is a truism in all busted deal cases. As plaintiff acknowledges, the termination date provides an indication of how long the parties intended to be in the contractual limbo of operating subject to interim covenants. Here, by including a provision automatically extending the termination date through litigation, the parties express their intention to ensure sufficient time to adjudicate any disputes. I actually like this rhetorical turn here. So they go into their motion and say, look, we put forth October because we knew we didn't want to be in limbo past October. And here the Musk legal team says, you're right. The contract does reflect what the parties were willing to do here. And the parties already allowed for this contract to be in quote unquote limbo for up to 20 days after a litigation might be concluded. Again, I think Musk's strongest point are the points that he should be raising here in the motion to say, I don't want to have this in September. Uh, now, if I'm the judge, I'm probably giving him February or some kind of compromise position between September and February, but we don't know which way the judge will go. And it is ultimately, no pun intended, a judgment call. This will be up to the court based basically on their own recognizance as to what they want to do here. Extreme expedition is also unwarranted because any exigency stems from plaintiff strategic delay. They held this information out for two months. They could have gone through all of this faster or told us they weren't going to give us any of this information. We would have done this all two months ago, and then we could have had our trial case potentially in September. They didn't, and so the court should adopt defendant's February schedule. That was Elon Musk's response as of a couple of days ago. Now, this all leads into tomorrow, where even though the judge that has been assigned this case was just found to have tested positive for COVID-19, the judge is in fact going through 
with the procedure that is scheduled for tomorrow instead of in person by Zoom call. So between 11 a.m. and 12.30 p.m., there will be a hearing in the Delaware Court of Chancery. You can see the public access line right here if you want to call in. And when that happens, you will get the party's arguments for expedition, as well as probably at least a little bit of an inkling as to which way the judge is likely to go with respect to it. We also, about an hour ago, got a report from Reuters that Twitter has filed a response to Elon's response, effectively saying the expedition should be granted because Elon Musk is trying to slow walk the company's lawsuit and millions of Twitter shares trade daily under a cloud of Musk-created doubt, which just doesn't sound very pleasant now, does it? No public company of this size and scale has ever had to bear these uncertainties. Not sure that's true. It's a little bit hyperbolic, but we'd have to really think about what other companies have been in limbo for as long in a way that their publicly traded stock is otherwise negatively affected. That has been Virtual Legality for today. If you enjoy content like this, the discussion of business and law, stockholders, Twitter, technology, video games, and more, please consider supporting the channel. We've got all the links listed in the description below. We've got a Utreon. We've got a Patreon. We've got a store. We've got YouTube memberships and more. Please do check those out. Or if you aren't interested in any of that, just subscribing, ringing bells, upvoting, downvoting, doing all of that fun stuff helps let YouTube know that we're here, helps grow the channel, and I really sincerely appreciate it. If you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.